On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Amanda, and Amanda was married to a physically abusive Mr. Wright. It's a story of the marriage dream, being complete, sowing the seeds of doubt, threats, isolation, protecting your kids, and the loss of control. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Amanda Lee. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am doing well. And if you want to be a guest on our show like Amanda Lee is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. Please do read all of the instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out the Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do read all the instructions and send everything in in the format that we ask for. Also, if you have not left us a review, we are always looking for reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if you would like to leave us a five-star review, please do leave us a review because it helps out the show with rankings and for discoverability. So please do that. It'll help a lot of people by giving us a good review. So please leave us a review today. And a big trigger warning for this episode, Uh, we have strong language in this episode, there's uh, physical abuse that is discussed in this episode, and then there's this big event that happens as well, and I use the word event, but a a very uh, terrible situation that happens, and it might be very difficult for people to hear because it does involve the threat of taking one's life and the actions that go with that as well. So it's a big, big, big trigger warning for this episode. And you're going to hear a story today where the person that Amanda was dealing with was a Mr. Wright, where it's someone who was uh, wanted you to always be in awe of their intelligence and they sh- you should look up to them in- in intellectually and that they knew better than you did in every single way. And this is who uh, Amanda was uh, dealing with. So I'm going to get out of uh, my way and your way here. Amanda, the floor is now yours. Thank you so much for having me. Um, We connected because I wrote a book. It's called One of the Lucky Ones. And it's about how I escaped from an abusive marriage. Um, I was married for seven years. We were together for 10. He um, was verbally, physically, emotionally, financially abusive towards me which I did not, I don't know that I fully realized at the time what was happening. And when I did realize it came to a point where I was, I didn't know how to get out safely. And at that point we had two children. So it was, how do I get out safely? How do I get out and still be able to protect my children? And then one night my, my hand was forced. I thought that would be the end of my story, but it was it was more of the beginning of my story because once you escape an abuser, which no one really talks about, um, that the most 
dangerous part for a domestic violence survivor is the moment you decide to leave and the moment you're able to leave and the abuser doesn't have that control over you. So you mentioned there that the most dangerous part when leaving is when the abuser does not have control over you anymore. And, you know, the big thing there is the main goal for an abuser is to get your attention, to provoke a response in you, in you, to regain their power. And that can happen in many different ways. And it can be a very, very scary place to be because some of these abusers will do anything to regain that power. And that was what eventually started to happen with you. But before we get there, let's uh, discuss your uh, childhood first. So what was your upbringing like? Uh, what, were you, what were your beliefs? And uh, who were you? Yeah, so I grew up right right outside of Philadelphia, um, born and raised. But I had an I had a quote unquote normal childhood. I had two parents who loved each other. There was fighting, but there wasn't it wasn't abusive. Um, but there was definitely an emphasis on relationships. Both of my parents, I was a product of their second marriage. My both of them had been married before. My dad had been um, married, had two children, and then he met my mom. They got married. They had me. And there was always an emphasis on being in a relationship. Like you were full, you weren't full until you, you were in a relationship and whether that was ever stated to me, or that was just my original feeling, I I couldn't tell you. I think it was more just a feeling that I had. I also had this, this feeling that I watching my father deal with co-parenting, um, with his ex-wife, I remember thinking, I, I never want to do that. I, I want to be one and done. I want to get married. I want to be married for life. And, you know, I, I grew up just not really, not really thinking that I was whole, like I said, unless I had a partner and I was not, I was not the prettiest girl growing up. I, I don't, I didn't hit my stride until in high school, but there was always self-esteem. I always felt like whatever relationship I was in, this was as good as it was going to get. This is what I deserved. I was never going to find anything better. And I truly believed that with previous relationships before I met my ex-husband. And as far as maybe admirable traits or uh, certain traits that you got from your parents? Were you a perfectionist of any sort? Like, how did you gain approval or love? Or were you looking for those things from them? Uh, I guess, what was where was your worth derived from when you were younger? And how did you try and get it? Yeah, so I definitely felt worth through praise um and was a people pleaser the minute that i was in trouble or someone was mad at me i tried everything i could to make sure that they were okay i distinctly remember my my brother is 13 years older than me and my sister is 11 years older than me and i remember he he was mad at me about something and i was like 5 so he was 18 so it could have, it could have been anything because I can imagine how annoying a five-year-old is to an 18-year-old. And I remember like putting pennies on his desk 
until he forgave me because I was trying to get him to forgive me because my, my worth was tied into people pleasing was tied into having people, you know, express to that, to express to me how much that they loved me. So uh, you being someone that is a quote unquote, a one and dunner has that's been established at a very young age. And we've talked about outcomes on the show before where the outcome or the end game of what you want or what's being dangled on a string in front of you can override your uh, gut feelings initially, but it can also um, keep you knee deep in the abuse because these uh, desired outcomes are just a really big reason people uh, stay, at least in part for a while, because that can change over time. So with you, for you, is this outcome about the one and done being reinforced by religion at all? Uh, and then sometimes it doesn't have to be religion. So is it being reinforced by your surrounding community or uh, an influence of your friends? We weren't particularly a religious family. We went to, we went to church occasionally on Sundays and I ended up going to a private religious high school. Um, but it wasn't, I don't, I don't know really. I, in my high school, it was a very small Christian high school. And there are a lot of people from my high school class. There was like 96 of us, but a lot of people got married almost immediately. If it, if, if not shortly after graduating college, like if you met your, your high school sweetheart, senior year of our high school, you married them. Like there are, there are several couples that have, were married, were together in high school that are married now, which is not, it's not the norm really. So I think this overarching theme of you're not whole until you're in that relationship was really just, it was, it was a theme that was throughout my life, whether, you know, it was forced upon me or not. It was, it was from the beginning, from wanting that to be that one and done, seeing my parents, seeing my siblings who are significantly older than me, watching them get married, you know, getting my first boyfriend and then, and then going to a high school that I was already known that like, well, if you dated someone in high school, you're going to marry them. Like, that's just how it works. So I may date you here, and this is just out of my own uh, movie curiosity, but what was your favorite romantic comedy or a romance movie uh, growing up? Um, you know, I'm just going to own it. I saw Titanic nine times in the movie theater. <laughs> so you have this really... Um, you that was a rush relationship i would say <laughs> yes <laughs> yes you're actually right like we could totally relate every relationship i've ever had to to leo and kate but <laughs> yeah i i i saw titanic nine times in the movie theater and uh cried every single time <laughs> when she wouldn't move over she could he could totally fit on the board she could have moved over but uh she didn't but this movie, it was a rushed two-day relationship. I'd say it was more lustful than love. A very over-the-top grand stuff. 
going on here. Rose was escaping her abusive fiance and looking to Jack to save her instead of saving herself. And I'll stop here with the Titanic stuff for now. Maybe we'll do a bonus episode about Titanic. But when it comes to you, Amanda, and the relationships that you had before you met your abuser, uh, what were they like? And what were the reasons those didn't work out? And were you looking for the opposite of what you were getting? You know, I think that like looking at back at my past boyfriends, which some of us, some of them might be listening to this when we, when we air it, um, none of them were bad guys. None of them were abusive, but I think I was trying to put, um, a square peg into a round hole. I was focused on being one and done. I wanted to be one and done. I wanted to find my person. I didn't feel whole until I found that person. And that's what I wanted. So my high school boyfriend, I was focused on, all right. So we met when we were 16. So we're going to get married. Like we're going to do it. We're going to beat the odds. And we weren't right for each other. He's a great guy. He really is. But we had no business being together. The guy I dated after him, again, another really great guy. But we had no business being together. We were, we weren't right. And I think it started to turn when I dated someone after him and we dated for four years and it was literally going nowhere. He lived in Washington, DC. I was in Philadelphia and I was constantly just waiting for him to make the next move. And he was very blunt with, he was not going to make the next move. And I had it in my mind that this was what I deserved. This is what the... I'm dating this person. So this is what I signed up for. So we're going to be together and it's, this is what's going to happen. And I'm just going to have to wait it out because again, like I just didn't, I had it in my mind that I wasn't fully whole unless I had someone. And thankfully, like he had enough sense. I mean, it, it took four years for one of us to do anything, but he had enough sense after four years to be like, I, I'm not going to marry you. You're not going to marry me. Like." what are we doing? And we broke up. And six months later, I met, I met my ex-husband. So walk us through where you met this person and how, I guess, did it all begin? Um, so we met through mutual friends. My coworker at the time was dating his old college roommate. I was living in Philadelphia and he was living in Washington, DC, and he came up for a party and we met and there was nothing crazy. It wasn't like fireworks, sparks, any of, any of that. Um, I thought he would be a friend. And I remember like Afterwards, we texted a couple times. I think we may have had brunch the next day with a group of us. And it, I would say it was probably like two months later, we were just texting back and forth. And then it kind of turned flirty. And then I was just like, you know, I bet he's safe. He seems safe. I remember thinking, he seems safe. I'm going to see what happens if I ask him to come up. We had another mutual friend party. He wasn't planning on coming, but I asked him to come and he did. Um, 
And he came up and we went to the party and then we went to a bar afterwards. And by the end of the night, it was just the two of us talking. He was incredibly charming. And I just remember thinking, I'm safe. Like, I could be with this person for the rest of my life. He seemed safe. That was the over, the kind of the overarching theme that was going through my mind. So specifically safe mean meant to me at the time, because it has changed over time, obviously with this person. Um, it meant that this is a person that I could spend my life with. This is a person that is going to be stable. This is a person who I could raise children with. Uh, he presented in a way that he was very charming. He was very intelligent. He presented that he came from a family that was very affluent. And, you know, I, I could live a comfortable life. And I'm not just talking financial, but like emotional too. We could live a comfortable life together. And I thought that's what I was signing up for. I also, as like the theme of my life, I have wanted to get married since I was five years old. I wanted to find my person at that moment. So I have always been looking for the end all be all. So when he walked into my life, I, I was done. I, I was 28. I'm like, all right, come on already. Like I, I want to, I want to find my person. And for the way you were brought up or everything that was surrounding you, 28 is old to you as far as getting old. married. I mean, I'm 40 now. So looking back, I'm like, oh my God, I was such a baby. Like, what was I doing? But at that point, I also had been a bridesmaid 10 times. I was like, all right, I'm done. Like 27 dresses was basically a biopic about, about my life. So you have this charming person, checks all of the boxes. There are no red flags at all is well okay so so go for it i was gonna say there there weren't any red flags maybe for the first couple months but there definitely were red flags that i ignored and what what were those and we and uh, for everyone listening um you say ignored but we like to say on the show, a red flag isn't a red flag until it becomes a pattern. So yeah. it's, it's you know, for people that are dealing with it, there's no shame of missing red flags. You don't know that no, they are no, no, at no. those times. No, there aren't. But there also are times where you definitely know in your gut that something is not right. And you either choose to act on it or you choose to bury it. And I chose to bury it. So um, he, I was told by several actually female friends. And one of them was his uh, brother's girlfriend at the time. They, they told me about his anger. Yeah, he's great. But have you seen his anger? Oh yeah. There was one time he really scared me. Oh, there was this one time I thought we were going to have to call the police. They kept talking about his, his anger, his anger, his anger. And I'm like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. This guy is so mild mannered. I haven't seen it. We've been dating for six months. I haven't seen anger. What are you talking about? Until there was one night we were at a Halloween party and I, I can't, I don't even remember what we were fighting about. It was a million years ago and we had a fight and his anger came out and he got with inches of my face and started screaming at me. And I remember thinking, okay, this must be what they were talking about. And how was that smoothed over? 
he was very apologetic. He did everything he could to make things right. And I thought it was a one-time deal. And every time after that, anytime there was an explosive argument like that, I, I had convinced myself that it was a one-time deal. This was not actually happening to me. Like I remember being like, this was a one-time deal. This is, this is not actually happening. I, this is not happening. We, it was a one-time deal. He's going to get help. Every time anything happened, he always promised me up and down. I'm going to get help. I'm going to get help. I'm going to get help. And I believed him. So I brought up outcomes or end goals earlier. And obviously yours is just a, is a very, very strong one. And I also mentioned that outcomes that you're desiring can eventually change once the abuse uh, really takes hold. Uh, immediate concerns can really become a, a bigger deal. So with you, how did yours change over time? At first, the outcome was to get married. And then we were married. It was like, okay, well, you're married. Now, now it's to stay married. Then we had children. So then it was, okay, well, now it's the children. So that, that outcome had changed over time. So you have this initial, for the most part, the initial um, honeymoon phase mm -hmm. where everything is most of the time perfect. And you have all of these good things going on. All these boxes are checked. When does, I guess, does abuse start happening? Like really noticeable stuff start happening before you get married? Do you move in first? Uh, I guess take us through those moments if it happens uh, earlier or does it happen after the fact? Yeah. So looking back, it definitely happened while we were dating and I didn't realize what was happening to me. And part of that being completely honest as a survivor of domestic violence makes me feel a little ashamed that I, I am an intelligent woman. I have two master's degrees and I didn't realize that this man was manipulating and being emotionally abusive, but it was, it was slow and it was over time. So there were, by the time we got engaged, I had been convinced that I couldn't remember anything to the point where I was pretty close to setting up a neurology appointment because I thought there was something wrong. Like he had convinced me that I had no memory of like conversations that we had. I was convinced that I was an awful driver. I mean, I'm not here saying that I'm like the best driver in the entire world. Like I'm not, I definitely have gotten accidents and speeding tickets, but like he had convinced me to the point where I didn't want to drive anywhere. Like I, I was like, no, 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 no. I don't, you drive, you drive. But things didn't hit ahead until we were engaged. We got engaged and that's when things hit ahead. And that's when I, I distinctly felt trapped because now I'm engaged. I had a ring on my finger that was my grandmother's ring. It's a family heirloom that I had wanted since forever. And my parents are, ex are planning this expensive, gorgeous wedding for us. I felt trapped. And, you know, I think he knew that. I, I do believe that he knew that I was trapped at that point. And that's why it got physical. So what happened right when you got uh, engaged? So I would say probably a week after we started having ex having explosive fights. And what I mean by explosive fights is we would have pretty, 
pretty loud yelling matches um, in the car, in our apartment, putting putting me down, me trying to defend myself. Um, and it always ended up with me apologizing. He always manipulated the conversation into me apologizing. And it was three months after we had gotten engaged, we were having a fight about something. And he came over and poured wine on top of my head. And I shoved him because he had just poured wine over my head. And I'm like, what what are you doing? And that's when he began to headbutt me. And to the point where I fell on our bed in our apartment and I had just picked up the dry cleaning that day. So I was in a sea of plastic and he was on top of me choking me. And I don't know why he got up. I don't know if it was me gasping for air. I don't know what happened, but he got up and he left the apartment. And I was in a state of what just happened? What do I do? And if I could go back in time, I would shake that person to be like, you, you need to get the hell out of there. You need to call 911. Like you need to do all the things, but I didn't. I called his mom and I called his mom because she had presented as a person that I could trust. And also I knew that she wouldn't immediately like go in for the kill for her son for what he did. And I called her and I called and her, his dad got on the phone and they called him to make sure he was okay. And, um, and I never told anyone other than them about what happened. And that night that later that night he came home and his mom had told me, and she point blank said, if anything ever like this happens again, and I know I'm going to call the police, Amanda. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she's going to call the police on her son. But she said that. And she all, and then she also said, and looking back, I can, I can think about how twisted this sounds. She said that I should keep a bag in my car with clothes and emergency stuff in case I have to run because that's what she does. Uh-huh. And at the time I was just like, oh, okay. But looking back, I'm like, oh, oh my God. Like that, that should have been like the, the sounding alarm, like get yourself out of here. <laughs> so this is a really interesting moment for you because you're able to confide in someone that's not your family or your friends, which I'm going to assume makes you feel like you have an ally, someone that knows your abuser well, and it's his mom, which becomes in my assumption, I guess, a contributing factor for staying that someone is alongside of you for these cycles. Is that fair to say? Very much so. I felt like she was my ally. Um, I, and I confided in her for a very, very long time until there was one moment um, and our kids were, were very little and we were at his parents' house for Christmas and they live about a half hour from my sister. 
and we were fighting about something and he smacked me not he smacked my hand to get something out but it was hard and was hurtful and i remember being like i'm done i like i'm not doing this you just did it in front of kids and your parents like this is not okay like i'm done i start packing everything up his dad was pleading with me not to go and his mom looked at me and she with such disdain and said to me well it's your choice if you want to split up your family and that's the moment when i was like Okay. Noted. If this ever actually happens, I understand where you will be. And, you know, you're confiding in this person. So you feel like you are getting heard and Mm -hmm. someone's understanding what you're going through. But at the same time, you're not telling your friends. And you're not no. telling your family, because I assume at that point, if you say it out loud to them, it's over. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I didn't, because I wasn't, for whatever reason, and I have, I've been through therapy, meditated, done energy healing, all of it on these things. I, I don't know why I didn't confide in them. The only thing I can think of is that I just wasn't ready. Because I knew the minute I picked up the phone and I told my parents or my sister or my best friends, it was no longer my choice. It was, no, you, you are not going to stay in this relationship. We are going to get you out of here. This is not safe. And I, I just couldn't. I couldn't tell them what was going on. So after this first uh, physical abuse or intimate partner violence occurs, and you also have this fake confidant in your midst, uh, let's say that when this relationship began, you were an A person, you were person A to begin with. I'm going to assume that you start to slowly morph into person B, then C, D, E, F, et cetera, et cetera. And that you're doing this to survive. So I assume here that there's going to be a loss of yourself. So if that is accurate to say, uh, what started happening with you as far as the loss of self goes? And how did the abuse uh, get worse? It was 100% a loss of myself. So, you know, the, the abuse ebbed and flowed as we were engaged. And again, I, I felt, I felt trapped. I felt, well, I already said I was going to marry this person and we're planning all this. And my parents have put all this money out. There's no way to turn around. And once we got married, it was, it was a honeymoon period. It really was. And we got pregnant with my son within a year and it was not an easy pregnancy. I was very sick for the first couple months. And that's really showcased his selfishness because I would be like not be able to get out of bed and be like begging him to get me things and he would refuse to. And I naively, even though everybody says a baby doesn't solve anything, but I was like, well, when we have the baby, he's going to be so much better. And it wasn't, it made everything worse. And I, please don't get me wrong. I love my children and like I, I'm happy I was with with this person so I could have my children. That was our purpose. But once we had that little boy, 
something turned in him. He, I don't know if it was, he wasn't getting attention from me as much. Um, I, I don't know what it was, but he would go on rampages telling me what an awful mother I was. Um, and his favorite phrase was, I'm a great caregiver, but I suck as a mom. And he would compare me to our friends who are parents and what a better mom that person is compared to me. And it would continue. And I lost myself during that time period. I thought I was losing myself because I had a baby. And then shortly after that, I had another baby. My, my son was nine months old when I got pregnant with my daughter. So I had two under two and I mean, two multiple children in general are a lot. Two under two is a lot. And I lost myself. I lost myself trying to protect them from their father's verbal abuse because it was verbal abuse at that point. And I had recognized that at that point. I knew what he was doing when he would refer to me as woman, woman, I told you or woman, I said, and I'm like, and that started all of a sudden or calling me names, calling me the C word, calling me a bitch. Like, you know, these are not normal fights and conversations that you have in a healthy relationship. And I lost myself for several years. It was taking care of the kids, protecting them, not trying to shield them from his verbal abuse, trying to live with his verbal abuse, trying to reconcile with myself. Like this is a person that I signed up for a lifetime with. How am I going to do that? So when you're trying to figure out that problem or that conundrum in your head and you're being abused in all of these ways, you know, you've used the word trapped before, Mm -hmm. but how are you feeling? Like, how are you, like, are you letting yourself feel at all? Or are you just trying to survive the day and feelings aren't a part of that? And if feelings aren't a part of it in the aftermath while sitting in a moment like that in the middle of all of this, were you able to access your feelings? And I guess the depths of where you were, what is that? What is trapped to you when you're thinking about those feelings? So trapped is I wasn't allowing myself to feel those feelings. It was anytime I felt those feelings, I was equating that to being a mom. I mean, being a parent is overwhelming. So I was equating everything that I was feeling to the fact that I was a new mom. And it wasn't. It was not all of those feelings I was feelings, all of those feelings that I had were not just trying to survive being a new parent. I mean, don't get, being a new parent is a lot. I mean, we could, we could do like three hours on being a new parent. Like it was a lot. But also coupled with verbal and physical abuse in that is beyond overwhelming. So I would mentally block out what he was doing and try and completely ignore it and focus, hyper-focus on the kids and being a mom 
And then when those, when I would allow those rare moments, I would allow those emotions to arrive. I equated them to just being overwhelmed as a mom. So you're in this survival mode and you're also equating your feelings with being a mom. So how are you being within the relationship as far as relating to them? How are you making it work? Um, you know, I tried to make the best of what I had and I was very conscious, especially as the kids grew of what they were witnessing. Um, so, you know, the phrase fake it till you make it, I faked it till I made it. I tried to present as a loving couple while I was living in fear. And also when I was coming to the realization of what actually was happening in my marriage. Um, but it was, it was very much walking on eggshells. I never knew what was going to set him off. Um, towards the end, it was any little thing with the kids. Our children, when we separated, were were three and four. So, you know, three and four-year-olds, they're, they're a lot. Even the best of them are a lot. And I had to alter work schedules so that he didn't have to be alone with them for very long. I had, we had to alter bedtime because he couldn't handle putting them to bed. I missed out on numerous events in my friend's lives because he couldn't handle being alone with the kids for several hours at a time. And it was also me. Like I feared what would happen if he was alone with the kids. Cause the few times that he was, and I came home he was living in a mess and they were crying in a mess. And I was just like, well, they, they don't deserve to live like this. So you have physical abuse happening. You're being verbally and emotionally abused, a gaslit. You're being minimized. You are doubting your memory, your competency. And he's very much a Mr. Right from the Lundy Bancroft list of abusers. Your kids are being verbally abused. You're living in fear. You're walking on eggshells. You are being isolated. You are not telling anyone that's an actual support person. Uh, These are also the things that you actually know of because you're still in the dark in a lot of ways on some other things uh, like financial abuse that we'll eventually hear. And you're just knee deep in it. And when you're knee deep in it, it's just really hard to see everything that is around you. Because when you're this far in, your world becomes the world of the abuser. You're now seeing things through the abuser's lens and not yours. So when do you have the moment where you say to yourself, Uh, I am being abused, like what's going on right now is abuse, where you have this moment of clarity. It wasn't until, I remember distinctly, I was driving down the road and I was listening to um, a a radio show at the time and it was right in the beginning of the Me Too movement and they started talking about the term gaslighting. And this was several years ago. So it was like a brand new term at that point. And they're, they're telling, they're telling the term and they're giving examples. And I had to pull over because I started crying. Cause so I was like, oh my God, 
this is what's happening to me on a daily basis. Oh my God, this is what's happening. Oh my, oh my God, I, I'm in an abusive relationship. And it, the, and then all the feelings came out. What is it like at that point being fully conscious of what you're in, who you're dealing with, and the learning curve of, okay, do I need to get out of here? How do I get out of here? When you become aware of everything, is that when you're like, okay, I need to start thinking about a plan of some sort? So how does that kind of evolve? Yeah. So the period of me recognizing what was happening and ultimately everything that happened was a short period. It was only several months, but those several months I would say were probably the worst in the marriage. Once I came to the realization of what was happening to me was abuse, um, it became, okay, well, I've recognized it. I don't want my children to live like this. I don't know how to get out safely. How do I get out safely? I And I was scared. I was scared to death. I was scared that I knew like if we had just separated and divorced, I had no proof against him that he was abusive. It was my word against his. That was not going to uphold in a court. He would probably get 50-50. So how am I going to protect my children when he has them 50% of the time? And then also it was the fear of he will lose control. And he had vividly told me at one point how he would kill somebody. Like we were watching some crime show and he was like, no, they did it wrong. Here's what I would do. And it was so bone chilling that I remember thinking, oh my God, I hope he doesn't do that to me. So those months, and it also became those months that I kind of just kind of lost it. I was like, I'm not dealing with your crap anymore. And I would walk away while he was yelling at me. I would work late and I would find other places for the kids to be. So he didn't have to be with them if I had to be out late. And that infuriated him. I saw the unraveling as he realized that he was losing control of over what I was doing. And I think, I truly believe that that slowly unraveling of losing control is what led to such a dramatic event, which forced my hand, which made us, you know, flee the house at night and call the police and ultimately ended the marriage. So it was August 3rd, 2019. And we were supposed to leave on a family cruise the next day. My father was turning 80 years old. He was taking all of us on a cruise. He had taken our son for a haircut. I took our three-year-old for to get her nails done because she had been a flower girl two months prior and she got her nails done and it was clear she had found her people at the nail salon. So we were, we were giving her a treat and we both came home and, you know, three-year-olds, once they're done an activity, they're done an activity. So she was acting up in the car. So we sent her to her room. And she, as I like to say, was performing her one woman exorcist show in her bedroom, screaming and banging. And we were eating lunch, just me and him. And I, he started complaining about the neighbor's children and how out of control they were. And I simply said, I didn't really think we had any room to talk considering what was going on upstairs. And he started in on me about how abrasive I was and how 
uh, he can't talk to me about anything and was just ranting and raving. And I'm like, you can't talk to me like that. That was my standard. You can't talk to me like that. What, what would you do if our daughter's husband talked to her like that? You can't talk to me like that. And he slammed his plate down and was just like, I'm done. I don't want to talk to you anymore today. And we went about an hour or two without talking. He came up to the kitchen. I was trying to talk to him and he would ignore me. That was his other power play after something happened, just ignoring me and me begging him to talk to me. And what he said to me was, I'm not going on the cruise with the family. I'm not leaving you. But as soon as the kids turn 18, I want a divorce. I'll move into the basement. And I was like, what? First of all, like, that's my line. I want a divorce, not yours. Like, I've decided that. But like, what? Our children are three and four. I'm like, you have to talk. Please talk to me. Like, this is ridiculous. So I called my sister, who then she tried to talk to him and he refused to talk to her. And calling her apparently was the wrong move because that infuriated him. And we had a retirement party to go to at during at that night too. So I decided that I, I needed to get out. I needed to clear my head after hit what he was saying. I was going to go to the retirement party. So I was sending our children over to our neighbor's house and he was ranting and raving in front of the children that I'm constantly out. I'm constantly leaving them, which was untrue. And then he was saying in front of our children that he was going to go to the strip. I might just go to the strip club. I mean, who cares? She does what she wants. I, I'm going to do what I want. I'm just going to go to the strip club. I remember our four-year-old son turned to me and was like, what's a strip club? I'm like, nothing. Don't worry about it. It's fine. I sent them. I went to the retirement party. I saw my friends. I cleared my mind. I came back. He was there. He was at the neighbor's house. We all came back to the house. We still hadn't spoken. I threw the kids in the shower. They're little, so they're still showering at the same time together. He walks into the bathroom and yells at our son to come out. And he wasn't ready. He wanted to play. I'm like, it's fine. He can play. So he does, he gets out again, both kids out. Our son walks downstairs to, and he, I hear him. He goes, daddy, I'm ready for bedtime. And he comes back in hysterically crying. And I'm like, what's wrong? He's like, daddy just yelled at me and said, you little shit, go to bed by yourself. I was like, okay, daddy didn't mean it, but let's get you dressed. So I got both kids dressed, put them both to bed. I went downstairs and I was like, you need to go upstairs and talk to him. And he's ignoring me. I'm like, you need to go upstairs and talk to him. This is not okay. He should not feel like this. He is four years old. And he turned to me and said, fuck you. And I was like, you cannot speak to me like that. You cannot speak to the kids like that. If you're not going on this cruise, like this is not okay. I'm following upstairs. I'm like pleading with him at this point, please go talk to him. Like he's crying in his bed. He again says, fuck you to me and throws a glass of water on me. And I was like, I'm going to call the police. You cannot do this to me. And he got within an inch of my face and said, you're going to call the police. I'd love to see you try. I will chop up your body before they are able to even ring the doorbell. You don't stand a chance. So I ran downstairs and I had my cell phone in hand and I, I had dialed nine one. I hadn't put that last one in. And he stood at the top of the stairs and mocked me and was like, what are you going to do? You can call police. You can call police on me. Go ahead. Go ahead, Amanda. Go ahead. And I was like, what am I going to do? He's standing in between me and my children. How am I going to make this okay? 
And at that point he said, you know what? Fuck this. I'm going to burn the house down. I'm going to burn the house down with you and the kids in it. Walked past me. And that's when I knew my opportunity was. I ran up the stairs, grabbed my kids, said we had to go. And as we're running out of the house, I turned around and I saw him and he had our red gas can in one hand and a lighter in another. And I was on the phone with 911 running to our neighbor's house. So as I'm frantically banging on my neighbor's house, who, by the way, never lock their door except for that night. (laughs) And I can't get in. I'm banging. He realizes what I'm doing, puts everything away, gets in his car, um, yells, nice knowing you, bitch, and peels out of the neighborhood. My neighbor comes out, who was a cop at the time. I tell them what's happening. They they engulf my children. We walk back to my house and the local police show up, take my statement, and then eventually arrest him. So he is arrested and I'm given an emergency protective order. Um, he is bailed out of jail and he goes to Pennsylvania to his parents' house. We don't go on the cruise. And that this happened on a Saturday night. And on Monday, I'm in the court getting an emergency protective order extension for two weeks. And we have that in place for quite a while because there's criminal charges as well. He was charged with assault because he threw water on me and threat to bomb and burn. Um, and we're in court for what felt like every week for three months. Cause we had, he, we const- he constantly asked for extensions of the protective order until the criminal charges were heard. Um, we heard the criminal charges probably a month and a half afterwards. He was put on probation and I was given a two year protective order. And I was told that nothing further could happen because this was the first incident that the police were called. So, and they couldn't charge him um, for the threat to bomb or burn because it was my word against his, which didn't go over well, by the way, with me. (laughs) So within the time of, you know, him being arrested to uh, that court proceedings in that instance to be over, Mm -hmm. um, how are you feeling during that whole entire time? And obviously now your friends and family know what's going on, or at least mm-hmm. all of them should. Yeah. How, are, how are you dealing with maybe shame um, and everything and all of your feelings that are going on during that period? Are you feeling relief? Like what's happening with you? Yeah. You know, like I've really chosen to look at what happened as a blessing and forced my hand many ways. Like I didn't have a choice. Th- that man threatened to kill me and my children. I ran for my life that night. And because I ran for my life, because the police were involved, because he was arrested and protective orders were in place, I had no other choice than I had to tell my parents, my siblings, my friends. And I, I didn't fully break down until I had, I had to call my parents that night. And, you know, it's just something about, and it stems from childhood, right? Like when you get in trouble and you have to tell your parents like you're you're in you're in the principal's office and they make you call your parents. I mean, I I do this move as a teacher all the time. And you're the one who has to tell them. It's that moment where I was like, "Oh my god, my parents are going to know this is actually happening." I, can't, 
I couldn't even get the words out. I was hysterical. I had to give the phone to the police officer to tell my parents what was happening. It's, you know, I had to tell my big sister. I had to tell my friends that I have been friends with since I was 12 years old. And I'm happy that I did because if my hand wasn't forced that night, I don't know that I would have shared all the details because there is shame involved, but it's also, it's more than that. You know, when you speak something out loud, it becomes true. Like this, this is actually happening. If I tell someone, then, then it's true. This is actually happening to me. But without telling them, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have had the support. I was a mess and understandably so after everything that happened. And I've been asked before to like reflect on that time. I couldn't tell you what happens. I I know that I was here. My parents were here. Some of my friends came down. My sister came down. My children are still here. So I took care of them, but I couldn't, I couldn't tell you how I did it. And I could not have done it without my support team. I really couldn't have. And I just remember feeling lost and I just wanted reassurance that I was going to be okay. I wanted to know I was going to be okay, that the feelings that I were feeling were normal and that at the end of the day, I was going to be okay. So you went through this first process of court with the criminal case. Uh, Did you have to go to court when it came to divorce and how is the divorce process and how was how are your children? Uh, they're young, um, but how are they going through the process of the divorce, understanding everything? And was your husband um, really trying to make it uh, as bad or, or as bad as possible for you? Yeah, I mean, it was awful. It, I thought I naively thought that night, August third, was going to be the worst part of it, and I was wrong. Um, so we had a protective order and for the first month and a half, he did not see the children. And then it was FaceTime calls. Then it was supervised visits. Um, and they struggled. I mean, they were little, they, they really struggled with what was happening. Um, and they were scared. My son asked for a fire extinguisher in his room because he was worried that daddy was going to come back and burn the house down. Um, and like I said, I have an amazing support system. One of my really good friends, her husband is a firefighter and gave us and told us to come on a Sunday. And we came and they toured the fire station and got to ride in the fire truck and see all the tools to try and ease his mind. But yeah, I mean, I immediately found them a trauma therapist to try and help work through these issues. And it was a long time before he was able to see the kids and have any type of custody. And divorce, divorce in a normal circumstance is awful, but divorce in this circumstances was, it was hellacious. It took a very long time. I live in Virginia, as I said before, and you have to be separated for a year before you can file for divorce. You can file ahead of time in extreme circumstances. So I was able to file within a month. But you still have to be separated for that year. And after that year, then you can start working things out. And when it came to working things out, it was it was awful. We fought on everything. We He went through, um, he had open heart surgery. 
shortly after all of this happened. This happened in August and in January, he had open heart surgery and he had stated that he wasn't going to get paid. So we made an agreement that he would pay me back child support, you know, when he was back up and, and working. And it turned out that he, um, he was being paid the entire time and just not paying child support, not supporting your children. And it wasn't about, it wasn't about the kids. It was about, he was trying to screw me any way that he could. Um, and through like discovering, doing discoveries for the divorce, he had offshore accounts that I had no idea about. He had $60,000 in his savings account that I had no idea. Meanwhile, while we were married, I'm paying every freaking bill for the kids, for the house, aside from the mortgage, he paid the mortgage and I'm like in credit card debt and he is sitting on $60,000 as well as offshore accounts. Um, and just trying to divide up those financial stuff, trying to argue with custody. And then you also have, you know, the worry of, okay, well, if he's alone with the kids, what is that going to look like? How is that going to be okay? from the man who just six months ago threatened to kill us. And I requested all of these like psychological reports, which really, really infuriated him. But I didn't know how else to feel safe with the kids, with him being alone. It was an extremely long process. We, I mean, we separated that night on August 3rd and we weren't fully divorced until that following year, December 23rd was when we signed the papers. So after the divorce is finalized, does post-separation abuse uh, continue with him? It does. So he, you know, one of the most dangerous parts, as I said before, for a domestic violence victim is when you decide to leave, when the abuser realizes they have no control. and. He had convinced one of our neighbors to give him access to their camera that was pointed and they pointed it at my driveway. So he knew exactly what was happening at the house. He knew my coming and going. He knew what the kids were doing and he used it. He would um, send me a text. Why does not have a coat on? It's 50 degrees outside. And I'm like, oh my God, how does he know this? Um, I was paranoid and had friends park in the garage. If they came over for dinner, I'd be like, why'd you let them park in the garage? I can't believe you made them park, let them park in the garage. I'm talking within 30 seconds. Like it must've been, it was a live feed going to his, his phone. And I called PIs to come out. I had the house swept three or four times. I called the police numerous times who told me basically there was nothing that they could do, that they couldn't prove it. Um, it was that type of things. And then he also did, um, he involved the kids at times. So he was doing supervised visits with the children in the beginning and it was over Christmas. And because we had a protective order, he had asked if he could have the kids over Christmas. And I'm like, we have a protective order. Like if there's a way to work it out with a protective order, yes, but I'm not giving you the kids because that's a violation of the protective order. So we need to go to court and make an amendment and that can happen. And he was unwilling to do that. So he told the kids that I would not allow him to see them, him at Christmas. And then that following whatever Monday was after Christmas, he took a picture of his Christmas tree with all the presents under it 
and showed the kids, look, these are all the presents you would have gotten, but mommy won't let me see you. And it was like that. Well, mommy won't let me do this. Mommy won't let me do this. Oh, well, we can't do that because mommy did this. And that type of thing involving the kids continued. So with his parental alienation type antics, trying to kind of separate the kids from you, how are you handling these situations now? And how do you talk to your children uh, about this? And I guess as well, um, how are you trying to heal when you're still dealing with him in a bunch of capacities? Because it's very hard to heal, especially when you have someone who's actively trying to get at you or just make your life worse as it goes on. Yeah. And as silly as it sounds, I don't even know at that moment that I knew I needed to heal. I was in survival mode. So when he would do things like that and he was FaceTiming the kids, which were court mandated that he FaceTimed the kids every other day. And I did not fully appreciate when that was going to happen, the trauma that I personally was going to feel hearing his voice that often. And that was awful. But when he would do things like that, I would I would sit the kids down. And the way I tried to explain it to them, what happened was daddy was not in his right mind. He's not feeling well. He needs to get the help that he needs. So when he did this particular tactic one night, when he was telling the kids, I was not going to let them see him for Christmas, I sat them down. I was like, guys you can't see daddy because of what happened. It, it's not me. Bigger people aside from mommy are saying that he cannot see you unless we're at this place that we go to with Mr. Jeff, who was the supervisor. And I remember my five-year-old at the time was like, yeah, I know. I know. And my daughter was like, but I really want to see daddy. I know. I know you do, kiddo. And you know what? Next Christmas, I bet you'll spend Christmas with them. But this Christmas, you're all me. And then we would talk about what we were going to do. Let's get matching PJs. Let's bake cookies. Let's watch Elf. And I tried to spin it as, you know what? I, I acknowledge your feeling, but let's try and focus on the positive. And that has been my tactic all along. Because the trauma that they experienced, the trauma that I experienced from the relationship from that night is not a one-time deal. It's not like you cry once and you're completely over it. So anytime it comes up and it comes up at random times, I always try to acknowledge it and then let, okay, let's focus on the positive. You're absolutely right. You should feel all of the feelings, but let's focus on what we have right now. So have you felt all your feelings and how is your trauma and your healing going? Um, I don't know if I've felt all my feelings. <laughs> well, well, how do you feel? Well, before we get into that, how do you feel about your dream and grieving your dream, which is a one and done, I'm married to this person forever. Yeah. And that is now impossible to get back. And I, and that's such a great 
way to put it. And I thank you for putting it that way because that really was it. I was grieving the loss of the life that I thought I was going to have. And I have done enough healing and self-reflection at this point that I know that in reality, that was not the life that I wanted. That was not the marriage I wanted. That was not the partner I wanted. That's not what I wanted for my children. That's not what I want to be with or who I want to be for the next 80 years. And at this point, I'm in a very healthy spot. It's taken me a while to be there. It's taken a while for me to remember who I was. And that wouldn't have been possible without all of the things that I've done. I've, I've done the therapy. I've done the untraditional route and solo psychic. I've, I I've done, I've done energy healing. I've done meditation. I've done everything. If someone recommended it for trauma, PTSD victims, I did it. And I'm glad I did because all of it combined has led me to be myself again. So at one time, you wanted this future and you wanted to be this one and dunner. That was your goal in life. And that goal isn't there anymore. And you can never achieve that goal ever again when you wanted something that was the one and done. That's that's gone. And there's a grief process there as well. So who are you now? And I guess, what is your new goal in life? I mean, I think my new goal in life looked like I I wrote a book and I first wrote it to be therapeutic. And it was, it was incredibly therapeutic. It's one of the best things that I did was writing, writing something down. Some people can journal and I respect them for it. And I've always wanted to be that person who could journal. That's not me. And I have a stack of beautiful journals for those moments when I walk into Barnes and Noble and I think I can be that person and I'm not. Um, And I thought it was going to just be this cute little thing that I set aside. And it, I gave it to one of my girlfriends to read and she was like, this is amazing. Like, why don't you get an editor? See if you can do something with it. And then I got an editor and my editor was like, oh my God, you have to publish this. This is going to help people. And my new goal in life became, I want to be a writer and I want to help people. I want someone to pick up my book, see a piece of themselves in this and be able to be like, this is going to give me the courage that I need to move on, to change something, to to recognize that I don't deserve what's happening. So, you know, you've come a long way. You're now this person. You now wanted to be an author. Uh, mm-hmm. You're not this person that's stuck in this, this relationship and surviving. You, mm-hmm. you're, you're not a survivor. Well, you are a survivor, but now you are fully whole as a human being. So when it comes to words of wisdom or advice for other people, you know, maybe mistakes you might've made along the way, uh, things like that. What would you say to people that are going through this or are trying to get to the other side after being out of the relationship? So I think the first thing that my, like my words of wisdom is that if you are nervous to tell someone about what's happening in your relationship, that is your first warning sign. When you don't want to confide in your best friend, your parents, your siblings about something that is happening, that is your first warning sign. And then I found one of my girlfriends sent me this, this great quote from Instagram, and I'm going to totally butcher it. 
but it was about those butterflies. You know, those butterflies everyone talks about in a new relationship you feel, those aren't actually good. Those are your first warning signs. You know, we're taught that these are good. These are, this is the beginning of relationship. Everyone should have butterflies, but those butterflies are actually your anxiety. They're warning you that this is not okay. When you've met your person, you've, you're in your healthy relationship. You don't have those butterflies. You don't have that anxiety because you're able to be yourself. Those butterflies are telling you this is not okay. This is not what you need. This is not love. You need to listen to those butterflies because the person that you're dating or you're supposed to be with is not going to make you worry if they're going to be kind to you. Are they going to call me? Are they going to text me back? Those things you don't have to worry about if you have met your match and the person that you're supposed to be with in a healthy relationship. So Amanda, I really want to thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, sharing your story is not easy to tell your story. You've uh, been through a lot and uh, you're here, you're safe, you're alive, your kids are alive. And I know that you and your story are going to help a lot of people. So I cannot thank you enough for being here with us today and uh, sharing your story, sharing your knowledge, your experience, your feelings, everything uh, with everyone. So big, big, big thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for having me. And uh, we're also going to leave a link for Amanda's book if anyone wants to know more about her story in our show notes. And if you want to be a guest like Amanda was today on our show, just go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There, please do read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button and please do read all of the instructions and send it in the format that we ask for also at our website we have our very own support group at narcissistapocalypse.com at the top of the page you'll see a button that says support group and it takes you to our safe social network where on wednesday nights thursday afternoons and saturday nights we have zoom meetings with fellow survivors like yourself and also on our support group we have forum boards for you to post on get validation you need get the support you need from fellow survivors there too. We're on there. We're there to support you, what you're going through, what you've been through. And it's just a great group of people in our support group. So join our group today at NarcissistApocalypse.com. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. It's a wonderful organization. You can get articles and resources there that are free to help you make sense of what you are dealing with. They have every phone number, every website address, every email address for shelters and agencies, domestic violence agencies, no matter how big or small your town is, you will find it on domesticshelters.org. It's a wonderful organization and please do visit them today. And that is it for our show. So for myself and Amanda, we hope you have a good night.